I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I need to borrow some of Kevin's beard. <laughs> they never told me in seminary that lengths I'd have to go to as a pastor. Even shaving my beard for a wedding. What's all this morning's sermon is when God's grace to others bothers us. When God's grace to others bothers us. We're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse. We find ourselves at Luke 15, verse 30. We finished verse 29 last week. Join me in praying, please. God bless this word. Father, you've been so gracious to us. We sit here, and if we're saved, I can't imagine the grace that, was, that has been given to us for us to be declared righteous uh, by grace through faith, justified uh, simply by your goodness, Lord, that you would give your son on that cross in our place and that his perfect life would be imputed to us. It's really unimaginable how much grace has been given to us. But, Lord, I know we can be stingy toward others. At least I can. We might not always appreciate the grace that's shown to, uh, in other people's lives. We see the older brother here, and he definitely didn't like the grace that was shown to his younger brother. I think there's application for us, Lord, and if there are any, and perhaps people are listening right now thinking, well, you know, I, I love to see other people be blessed, and, and hopefully that's the case, but I believe that there are times for all of us where we think things are unfair or unjust, they don't sit well with us, but if that's your will, Lord, then we should rejoice in it. And so I pray that you would bless this sermon, that you would help us to learn from the older brother. I see this important way that we could be like him or like the vineyard workers that we would also be looking at a little later. And so I ask, Lord, just help us to celebrate the grace that you pour out on other people and be convicted in those areas where we might ourselves be somewhat stingy. Uh, always be mindful of how good you've been to us, Lord. I think that's really the encouragement we need to celebrate what you do in other people's lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So would you believe me if I told you that we don't always like God's grace? Does that sound accurate or inaccurate? We like God's grace in whose life? Our life. But we don't always like God's grace in other people's lives. And why is that? Because we like fairness, don't we? We like things to be fair. We like things to be just and equitable. We like people to get what they deserve. We don't like to see people get things that they don't deserve. We want people to receive things that they've earned and not just have them be freely given to them. But what is grace? What's a simple definition? Unmerited or unmerited, unmerited or unearned favor. And so by nature, by definition, grace is unfair. It is unequitable. It is unjust, you could even say, because people are being given what they didn't work for or what they didn't earn, and that can upset us. That can bother us, especially... If we believe that people are being shown grace that we didn't receive. We're going to look at two examples of this in Scripture and then discuss the application for us. Last week we made it through verse 29 and then look with me at verse 30 this morning. The older brother says, When this son of yours came, and I imagine him saying this with scorn, disdain, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, whenever God spoke to Moses, when he was upset with the people of Israel, what did God call them? What did God call the people of Israel when he was upset with them when he was speaking to Moses? He'd say, your people, right? They're no longer his people, our, our parents. When, when spouses are talking to each other and they're upset with their children, like, what do they say to each other? Your son did this. 
or your daughter or your kids. And that's pretty much what's happening here because the older son says what? What does he call? Can't, can't bring himself to call him his brother. What does he say? This son of yours. So the older brother was upset about all the grace that had been shown to his younger brother. He knows about the fattened calf and the celebration. Wait until he finds out about what? It's even worse than he thinks. He also got what? The robe, the shoes, and the ring. He doesn't even know about that yet. The older brother says, He devoured your property with prostitutes. He treated you this way, Father. This is how he's acted with your possessions and, and all that you gave him. He's been this sinful and immoral, and then you would respond this way toward him. So it's made even worse by the younger brother's behavior. He's been living terribly, and this is how you choose to, to treat him. He should be, he should be punished. I, said, I should see justice for this. I remember I was in high school, and I don't know how many of you were uh, in school when the O.J. Simpson verdict was read. But they stopped everything. They let us all tune in to that. And there was this just outrage associated with this man that everyone was convinced was guilty being, being uh, declared innocent. All, the, all that, that uh, how upsetting that justice wouldn't be served. And so the older brother looks and he feels the same. He can't believe that justice wouldn't be served in this case. And that instead of punishment, he'll be given all these gifts. Let me show you the second example to further drive this point home. Turn to Matthew 20. One thing to just keep in mind while we read this is that the older brother represents who? I don't want to keep reminding you of this. I'll just say it now and you can keep it in mind. He represents who? He represents the Pharisees or the religious leaders. The older brother represents the religious leaders. When we're upset about grace that's shown to others, we look like the older brother who looks like the religious leaders, and we never want to look like the religious leaders, right? Except for maybe the occasional time when they live to good. I'm going to go through this parable quickly because I'm looking at it to support what we're reading in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. We're not trying to, I'm not trying to exposit this parable like we've been doing with the prodigal son. I'm looking at it to get some uh, support for the point in Luke 15 that we're seeing. So we'll go quickly. Verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A denarius is the wage in the ancient world for a full day's labor. And so this is a very fair agreement. And you need to notice in the verse that it says that they agreed to it. That word, that word agree is going to be very important later. These men knew ahead of time that they're getting a denarius for the amount of work that they're doing, and that's what they agreed to, a perfectly fair arrangement. And they started working early in the morning. This would probably be 6 a.m. Verse 3 says, going out about the third hour, so this would be 9 a.m. So three hours later, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And then now notice this. He says, whatever is right, I will give you. So these workers were not told how much they would receive. They were simply told, whatever is right, I will give you. Now, most of the time, people are not willing to uh, go to work without knowing the price ahead of time, but these individuals are desperate, so they don't even care about trying to negotiate. They are afraid they're not going to have any work or any pay that day, so they're happy just to go and get something. Verse 5, they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, this would be 1 p.m., 
and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., the master did the same. Verse 6, and about the 11th hour, this would be 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And the master said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And so these men are even more desperate for work. And so they waited all day without being hired. And so they quickly take off without knowing what they're going to be paid to, just thankful that someone's shown any interest in them and that there's some possibility of profit that day. Surprisingly, watch what happens. Verse 8, evening comes, the owner of the vineyard says to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, those who'd worked only one hour that day, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. They'd work these 12-hour days, or some people would work 12-hour days. And these guys must have been ecstatic for what reason? They're paid first, and they had worked the least, and they were being paid the same amount as those who had worked a full day. So they're thrilled. The other workers were pretty thrilled when they saw this happen until, look at verse 10. And they were thrilled because they thought they'd get more money. When those hired first came, they were excited, I assume, because they thought they'd receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, and they said, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So notice the words, heat of the day. Those people who started working, you know, at 5 p.m. didn't have to put up with the hot sun blaring down on them. But those who'd begun at the beginning of the day had, had, had to endure the heat, and that didn't go over well with them either. Verse 13, the master responds, replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Now, two questions. First, was the landowner being unfair? No, he was not being unfair, which he pointed out to them. How did he point it out? What did he say? I'm doing you no wrong. Second, why wasn't he being unfair? Because he gave them exactly what he agreed to give them, which he also pointed out. He said, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Verse 14, so he says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, I want to get you to notice three things in these two verses. First, notice the word generosity. That's almost synonymous with what word? Grace. He says, I'm being generous. I'm being gracious. It helps us interpret the parable to see his generosity as grace. If it was fair for vineyard workers to receive one denarius for one day's work, if that was fair, then it was not fair for vineyard workers to work less than that and still receive one denarius. But if you have a parable about fairness, you can't have a parable about what? Grace. So if we're going to have a parable about grace, which is what this parable is about, 
we must see unfairness in it. <laughs> if you see fairness from beginning to end, that's not going to be a parable about grace because grace is unearned or unmerited or undeserved favor, which is what these workers who work less are demonstrating by being paid the same or it looks like being paid more than they seem to deserve. Also, another point about the parable. You need to understand this parable is and isn't about. This parable is not about rewards. There are other places in Scripture that discuss the rewards that we'll receive from God for our faithfulness in this life. But this parable is not about that. This, this par- Actually, if this parable was about rewards for our faithfulness in this life, then that would be the opposite of grace. That would be wages, right? If you have a parable about being rewarded for your faithfulness, do you see how that's actually the opposite of this parable, or that's the opposite of grace? Grace is when you receive what you don't deserve. If you receive a reward from God, then there's something that you did there to to earn that, some service or some work for his kingdom. Think of Romans 4.4, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift or as grace, but as his due or what he should be paid. If this parable is not about rewards for faithfulness, what is it about besides grace? It's a parable about salvation. And if you look at it that way, it makes perfect sense. Because people get saved at different times in their lives, right? represented by the different times of the day. Some people can get saved early in life, let's say 6 a.m., and then other people can get saved later in life, let's say the 11th hour or 5 p.m. Who's the premier example in the Bible, which uh, Dan Fiddley mentioned during his communion devotion, of getting saved at the end of his life? Yeah, the thief on the cross. Uh, without looking like he worked too much. And I say, with, you say, he didn't work at all. Actually, there is some evidence of his work. He did confess Christ. He did rebuke the other thief. He did at request to be, to be saved. And so there was works, but there just wasn't very much. And so that's like the 11, 11th hour or 11 hour and 59 minutes for the thief on the cross. But what did he receive? He received salvation just like what? just like the people that got saved at 6 a.m. When I first became a Christian and I shared the gospel with some of my Catholic family members, because they were part of a works-based religion, they had a really difficult time understanding, and many of them still didn't, or I don't want to say understand, that's, that's incorrect. They had a very difficult time accepting the truth that I was sharing with them, even if I showed it to them from Scripture. And many of them still have not accepted the truth that, that I shared with them from Scripture, that we are justified or saved by grace through faith and not by works. And that's because they were part of this works-based religion that required doing enough to be saved, whether it's baptism, confirmation, uh, you know, first communion, then regularly going to confession. And so when I told them that they needed only to believe that Jesus was the Son of God and he had died on the cross for their sins, what was their response to me? I mean, it's like, like eye-rolling. I'm serious, eye-rolling. Huffing and puffing. I just said the stupidest thing in the world. Oh, you're telling me that's all? That was, I got so sick and tired of hearing this phrase, and I'm just, I got so sick and tired of hearing, that's all I have to do. 
I heard that so many times in so many arguments. You're telling me that's all I have to do. All I have to do is believe because I was dealing with people who had been convinced that they really did have all this stuff to do to be saved. Oh, you're telling me if I just reach the end of my life and I just believe that I'm going to be saved. What about people who have lived these incredibly wicked lives from the moment they're born to the moment they die, and then you're telling me that suddenly, just like that, if they just believe, and that's, I was kind of, I'd kind of be mocked by that, oh, if they just believe, then they get to go to heaven. And so my Catholic members, family members, they struggled with this simply because they did not understand God's grace. They lived in this world of fairness and equity that did not see God as being gracious because they were the ones that were doing everything and working for their salvation and, and earning it. They would get to heaven someday and they would be ushered in and God would look at them and what would God say? I am so glad you were here. Thank you so much for all you did to get here. You are the one who earned this and you have been so incredible throughout your human life. I mean, I, I should be thanking you for what you did for me. If we understand God's grace, we're never going to get angry at others being saved, whether they're saved at the beginning of their lives or the end of their lives, because we always recognize that we did just as much as them to be saved, which is what? Huh? Okay, that, I, we're going to need a way better response. <laughs> okay, let's do this again. If we understand God's grace, we're never going to be angry at other people being saved, whether at the beginning of their lives or the end of their lives, because we recognize that we did as much to be saved as them, which is what? Oh, that was good. Thank you. That blesses me to hear you guys respond that way. Yeah, thank you. I mean that. Because, yeah, that, you, that person, that thief on the cross, you did as much to be saved as him or anyone else at all of human history who has been saved which is nothing. You contributed nothing to your salvation except the need to be saved. <laughs> the only thing you contributed to your salvation was your sin that needed to be forgiven. It's your belief in Christ that has saved you. Second, notice the repetition in those two verses of the words, I choose. I choose. And this is where this vineyard owner really begins to look like God. He says, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That right there is the only explanation given for the landowner's actions. It is what he chooses to do. The reasons for his generosity or his graciousness are known only to whom? To him, that's it. Nobody else. And, if, and I love it because if you just give me your attention for a moment, this is what it means to be God. To be God means you don't have to do what? Explain yourself or defend yourself or apologize for anything. And Job of all people shows us that because if there's anyone in all of human history who looked like he deserved an explanation or even an apology, it's him. And Job spent the whole book wanting his audience, his day in court, with the Lord, and when he got it, he couldn't get further underground, covered by enough dust to hide himself from, from the shame and regret that he was experiencing. It's almost like Romans 9, 14 to 19, where God says that he has mercy and compassion on whomever he wants. Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it depends not on how hard we work or how much we do to be a recipient of God's mercy or compassion, which is to say it doesn't matter how hard we try or how much work we do, and we're looking at two great examples of that. The vineyard workers who didn't work as long, didn't do as much work, didn't have as much exertion, as Paul says in Romans 9, still received a denarius, showing that it doesn't depend on human will or exertion. The younger brother, did, did he work as hard as his older brother? I mean, we don't know. The younger brother worked, doesn't look like he worked at all. But he still ended up being this recipient of God's grace because, as Paul says in Romans 9, 16, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, if you want to know why God does what he does, which is to say why he chooses to, to show mercy, compassion, grace to some and not others, we get the answer in the following verse. Listen to this, Romans 9, 17. Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then God has mercy on him every wills and he hardens him every wills. Now, did you catch that? Why does God show mercy or compassion or grace to anyone? What did it say? Listen again. So my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that my power might be shown. So why does God show mercy or grace or compassion to anyone? For his glory. For his glory. That's the end of it. So he can receive the glory. This is why God does anything that he does. Anything that God has ever done has always been for his glory. And I think the sooner that we learn that in our Christian lives, then the better off we're going to be, that God is always working for his glory. So in other words, when the master says, I choose to give this last worker as I give to you, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? He looks just like God. Now finally, notice the end of verse 15. He says, do you begrudge my generosity? And when he says, do you begrudge my generosity? That's almost synonymous with what he's basically saying. What? Are you bothered by my grace to others? Has it upset you that I have been gracious to others? Some translations say, is your eye evil, which might sound a little strange to us, but that was a phrase used among Jews to indicate an envious or jealous disposition, which is why some other translations don't say evil eye. They say, are you envious or jealous because I'm generous or gracious to others? And this brings us to lesson one. If we don't understand God's grace to others, we will be part one, jealous of what others have. If we don't understand God's grace to others, we will be part one jealous of what others have. Two things we don't like. We don't like to see people get things that we think they don't deserve. And we don't like to see people get things that we think we deserve. That is a recipe for jealousy. And so we can be jealous of what other people receive just like the older brother was jealous of, was, of what his younger brother received. We see people, and metaphorically, they get the robe, they get the, the ring, they get the shoes, the fattened calf, the celebration, 
And if we're honest, there's a strong temptation for what in our hearts? Jealousy or envy. And then we can be tempted like the older brother to say, I have not disobeyed your commands. I know that I have been better than this person. And you didn't even give me a measly little goat to celebrate with my friends. Why am I not getting as much as they're getting? Or we might be like the vineyard workers and we're jealous. Other people don't have to work as much as we do. Why is their life not as hard as mine? Why do I have it so much worse than them? Why is their life so good? Why are they being given so much and I'm not? Why do I have all these trials and struggles, but they don't? If you have children, you know that one of the most common statements you hear from children is, it's, go ahead and say it, (laughs) it is not fair. It is not fair. Children see this, say this when they see other children receiving something that they didn't receive. Why did they get to have that, but I don't? It's not fair. Why don't they have to do this, but I do? It's not fair. Why do they get to go there, but I don't? It's not fair. Why do they get to stay up so late, but I don't? We hear that in our home. And I don't know how late these other kids are staying up, but it's not fair that they stay up so late. Why do their parents let them do that, but I don't get to do it? It's not fair. Why do I have so many chores, but they don't? It's not fair. And I'm pretty convinced all the other kids in this church have chores too. We need to get all the kids together in the fellowship hall and so they can all see at one time that everyone has chores. Okay, it's not just... You, all the children look at me. You're not the only one with chores. You're not the only one that has to go to bed at a certain time. You're not the only one that has to brush your teeth. You're not the only one that has to do all these different things. But why am I saying this? Because as adults, who can we be a lot like at times? Now all the kids are celebrating. They're like, yes, get the adults. (laughs) Kids are like, you were hammering us, Pastor Scott. Get those adults who can be just like us at times. And that's the truth. We can be like, I, we can say the same thing. We might, might not say it out loud, but we can say it in our hearts. And sometimes we might even say it to God. It is not fair, Lord. My life is not fair. This is not fair. I'm jealous of what they have. I'm jealous of what they don't have to go through. And so let's ask ourselves something that I've been asking myself. Am I jealous of others because God has been gracious to them? And I'll tell you one reason it's so dangerous to be jealous of others, and this brings us to the next part of lesson one. If we don't understand God's grace to others, we will be part two, discontent with what we have. Discontent with what we have. And I just want you to notice this is exactly what happened in the parable of the vineyard workers. Because the vineyard workers who worked the longest received exactly what they were told they would receive at Daenerys. Just think about this. You know the vineyard workers who got really upset and they said, we worked the whole day. Why do they get more than us? Have you ever considered that if they were the only workers to get paid that day, they would have been content? So they were not discontent with what they received. They were discontent that others received exactly what they received when they had not worked as hard. So those who worked the longest were paid first, and they took their denarius and left and never saw the other people get paid the same. They would have went home totally fine and happy. They would have showed up for work the next day totally ready to get another denarius and then be on their merry way and rejoice about the fairness and justice of their paycheck. 
But as soon as they saw other people getting the same as them, when they didn't work as hard, immediately they were discontent with what they had been giving, and this can easily play out in our lives. Have you ever noticed that you feel pretty good about your car (laughs) or your house or your clothes or your job or your health? And I've seen this play out, maybe even your marriage, your children, your family, but then suddenly you see what? Someone's newer car, someone's bigger house, better clothes, better health, better marriage, better behaved children, and then suddenly your stuff just doesn't look so good anymore, does it? It's not as shiny any longer, it's not as fancy, and you're discontent, or we're discontent with what, because I can start with this too. We're discontent with what we previously were content with. Do you know what has made this incredibly worse? Thank you. Social media is, I'm not joking, social media is ruining people's lives. Because you are getting windows into people's lives that are not accurate windows. And I admit, I'm part of the problem. I don't put up ugly pictures of myself or my kids or my family, right? You know, you kind of look through and you're like, man, I look particularly ugly in this picture here where I shave my beard and I just have this mustache. <laughs> I'm not putting that on social media. I'll wait till my beard grows back. Oh, my kids don't look very good in this picture. I'm not going to put that one there. So none of us like to present ourselves poorly, but because social media is filled with everyone presenting themselves wonderfully and beautifully, we're getting pictures of other people's lives that are not even true. It's almost airbrushed images. Do you know all the all the models or everything you see in magazines, those, that's not what real people, those people don't really look like that. People don't, they edit the images. And that's what you're seeing with social media, probably airbrushed images of people. And suddenly your life is terrible because you're comparing it to these perfect, perfect people's lives. And they look so happy. And look at their kids in the photo. Their kids are all sitting there smiling and their hands are crossed. They probably just finished praying. You know, and everyone looks great, and it's like, man, I can't get my kids to sit still for a second, and you don't know that they had to take that photo 30 times first, and they were probably just screaming at their kids to get them to sit still for that photo. Not that that's ever happened with our family before when we've never been anywhere. And all the kids are smiling, but right before that, we're arguing as a family so that we can look good for this photo. Now, this past week, a Christian family from China stayed with us. They'd been in China for over 30 years, and they came here to receive some training, and they need a place to stay. I can't say enough good things about this hospitality network called The Candle in the Window. If any of you want to sign up, be blessed by But that's how we met this family. So they're here for four years to receive training and then go back to China to plant churches. In our short time with them, two things stood out to me. First, our American Christianity has influenced us to think that this American Christianity is what Christianity looks like in the rest of the world. And that's just not true. The way that our churches look in the United States is not the way that churches look in the rest of the world. And just to be honest with you, the way they look in the rest of the world many times is more biblical than what we're seeing here. And one of the things that they, and he wasn't even criticizing American churches, this gentleman, Peter. He said, I had never seen it like this. I had never seen that you would go into church and your kids wouldn't be with you. He said, I, I never 
that in China, everyone just is together as families. They go as families. They worship as families. They do all this stuff. Together as families was one of the things he shared. The second thing that stood out to me was we really don't have anything to be discontent about as American Christians. And I don't want to offend anyone when I say this or sound harsh, but we can be incredibly immature babies. We can be very selfish, and we want what we want. And I think if we could just spend a little bit of time in some of these other countries like China being Christians, we would realize how, how immature and selfish we can, we can be at times. And, and I gather that just from the short conversation with him. And so let's ask ourselves something that I can, I've been asking myself. Am I discontent with what I have because I'm focused on others? And there's another problem that develops when we focus on others, and this brings us to the next part of lesson one. If we don't understand God's grace to others, we'll be part three frustrated with others. We're going to be frustrated with others. When we're jealous of people, we will inevitably become frustrated with them. And worse, we could even begin to resent them because we don't like what they have. And we, frankly, we don't think they deserve it. We know them. They're not good enough to have that. We know that they don't serve enough or they're not obedient enough or they're not righteous enough. They shouldn't be given this much grace. And you know what? It frustrates me. And I'm now becoming resentful toward them. And this is what happened in the two examples we considered. The older brother became frustrated with his younger brother because of everything the younger brother received. And the vineyard workers became frustrated with the other vineyard workers who worked less time but still received so much. Now, I just want you to be honest for a second, okay? Just kind of dig down deep here and look at me. Someone sneeze right when I said that? Dig down deep and sneeze. Okay, dig down deep and be honest here. Can you understand why the older brother felt the way he did? You can. Be honest. You know you can. I can. I look at the older brother... And I'm like identifying with him thinking if, if I, you know, my younger brother and this and that, and that's what happened, I would be upset too. Now let's be the vineyard workers for the moment. And you worked a 12-hour day through the hot sun and you got a denarius. And then suddenly people worked an hour and they got a denarius. And how do you feel? You are upset. You are angry. Either you should get more or they should get less. But they shouldn't be getting the same as you. That's the one thing you know. You don't know exactly how much you should get and how much they should get. You just know that it shouldn't be the same. Because you know you've earned more and they've earned less. And there's no way they should be holding the same thing in their hand that you're holding in your hand. It doesn't sit well with us. It's not fair. It's unjust. It's not equitable. But the important thing to remember is if it was fair and if it was just and if it was equitable, it would not be grace. You see this in our day when we hear about notoriously sinful people getting saved. And it can be as hard for some people to accept a notoriously sinful person being saved as it was for the older brother to accept his younger brother repenting and, let's say, being saved because we know that's what all that imagery of everything he was given represents. Even though we've been recipients of God's grace, we can be stingy without same grace being shown to other people. It is easy to resent God's grace toward people, and this is the truth. You might, you might hear it at first and say, no, no, that's not true, but this is why we feel this way. It's easy to resent God's grace toward people that we think are far worse sinners than us, right? We think that we've been bad, but they've been incredibly bad. 
They've been terribly bad. We've only been like sort of bad, kind of bad. You know, like back in my Catholic days, we wouldn't be in purgatory as long as they would be there, right? I'd be there a couple years, they'd be there like millenniums. <laughs> what causes us to feel this way? Pride, that's the answer. It's only pride that causes us to feel that I'm here and they're here. I'm way better. They're like not really good at all. And that's pride that makes us think that. When people have lived notoriously sinful lives, it doesn't seem like they're worthy of salvation. They don't deserve to be saved. But you know what's interesting about me saying that? That's true. They don't deserve to be saved. You guys can finish it for me. You started to. Who else doesn't deserve to be saved? Yeah, we don't. They don't deserve to be saved, but we don't deserve to be saved. Nobody's ever deserved to be saved. And that's what makes it grace in their lives and what makes it grace in our lives. Now, sometimes when people grow up in the church and they've worked hard and they've been faithful, they can be frustrated when people get saved later after spending years living in the world. Or if we like almost consider how that mirrors the parable of the prodigal son after spending years living in you know, Gentile territory, and then they got to have their fun and do all the things I never got to do, and they still get heaven. I mean, how great is that? They get to have all the sinful fun they want, and they still get to go to heaven. And that's, I'm just jealous of them. Two thoughts. First, as someone who got saved in my early 20s after spending years in Gentile territory, I can tell you you didn't miss out on anything. <laughs> Being in Gentile territory is not a good thing. Being in the world is not a wonderful experience. It's like being the, the rebellious son, you know, with the pigs. Second, I'm jealous of people who got to grow up in the church and avoid all the garbage that, that I was around or that I experienced. There's really a wonderful grace that has been given to the children in this church who are growing up in Christian homes and being spared some of the stuff or much of the stuff that we experienced, those of us who got saved later in life. And as children, you're never really going to appreciate all God's done for you, growing you up in a Christian home. I mean, if all the kids just pay attention for a second, you are never going to fully appreciate all that God has done for you, all in sparing you from all of the filth that some of us, some of your parents like me, were around or did experience. I mean, I'm, I'm jealous, and I think this is a godly jealousy that I wish I'd have known Christ earlier, wish I'd have heard the gospel earlier, could have avoided some of the things that I engaged in or some of the decisions that I made, had a longer time to walk with the Lord, had 20 years more of reading God's Word. I only started reading God's Word in my 20s. I mean, how wonderful is it when you get to start reading God's Word when you're, you know, 15 years younger than that? I mean, that's incredible. I didn't really start learning Scripture until, until my early 20s. I mean, how, that's much better than if it had been 40s or 50s, but still sad compared to people that are hearing the Gospel and hearing God's Word so early. And so you children, you should just be so thankful what God has done in, in raising you up in Christian homes like this. So let's ask ourselves something that I've been asking myself. Am I like the older brother or the vineyard workers? And I'm frustrated with people because of what they have. The last part of lesson one, if we don't understand God's grace to others, we'll be part four frustrated with God. Frustrated with God. The older brother was frustrated. Okay, so, or if you're still writing, but just think about something for a second. The older brother was frustrated with his father 
the vineyard workers were frustrated with the owner or master of the vineyard. And the father and the owner of the vineyard both represent the same person. Who? God. And so when you see the older brother's frustration toward his father and the vineyard worker's frustration toward the owner of the vineyard, it pictures people's frustration toward God when they feel, when they don't understand his grace. Why he's been gracious to some or more gracious to some than they would like. And it's fitting because if we don't understand God's grace to others, we're going to be frustrated with God. He's not, and why? Why would we be frustrated? Well, he's not giving me what I deserve, what I've worked for and what I've earned. And I shouldn't have to go through this or experience this, or I should have this. This should be bigger or better in my life than it is. And I, I'm frustrated because God keeps giving everyone else what they don't deserve. Why did they get that? Why did he get it? Why did she get it? All the things we've been talking about. You're jealous at these, of these people. You're fresh with them, and the next you're fresh with God because he's the bestower of those gifts in their lives. And so what happens, the real tragedy with that view is instead of seeing a gracious God in heaven, you now see what? Someone who's unfair and unjust. So we have two ways to view God. And we're choosing that way based on our view of his grace. So if you can appreciate God's grace, then you see a gracious God. If you don't appreciate his grace, then he's unfair and he's unjust in your anger with him. But if we can celebrate God's grace to others, we can find ourselves obeying Romans 12, 15, which says rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. Rejoicing not just over their salvation, rejoicing over what they receive, rejoicing over their children, their family, their marriage, their gifts, the, the goodness God has given to them, the ways that he's lavished them. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so we can be encouraged that he is a good gift giver and we can rejoice with those people. Most importantly, we're rejoicing with God himself because as we saw from the parables in Luke 15, nothing causes God to rejoice more or gives him greater joy than sinners being saved. Now, our last lesson, our view of God's grace to others reveals our understanding of God's grace to us. Our view of God's grace to others reveals our understanding of God's grace to us. Jameson taught something in Sunday school months back that I thought was profound. He shared that the way we explain the gospel says much about our understanding of our sin, and I would add our understanding of God's grace to us. Let me say one more time. The way that we explain the gospel says much about our understanding of the gospel and I would say our understanding of God's grace. Now, here's what I mean. If people say, you know, I wasn't a very bad person when God saved me, the idea is that they were doing pretty well, right? I mean, they're pretty much like on their way to heaven. There's kind of a separation. They haven't quite gotten there yet. There's this chasm. And then the gospel or God's grace kind of makes up that difference or closes that chasm. And it's a revelation of how they view their sin and God's grace. Because to them, that chasm is not very big. It's almost one like they just, you know, given a little more time and effort, could have, could have spanned themselves. So their sin's not very bad, so they don't need much of God's grace to be saved. And there's two negative consequences of this view. The first consequence, negative consequence, is there's going to be little appreciation for what God has done. Because they were already pretty good and God just like kind of had to save them a little. He only had to do a little for them. And so they're thankful for the little that God did for them. And the other negative consequences, they're going to look down on others who are more sinful and needed lots of God's grace. Now, I only needed a little bit of God's grace to be saved because I was doing pretty good. 
you people needed a ton of God's grace to be saved because you weren't doing nearly as well as I was. So you're going to look down on others then. On the other hand, people who recognize how far they were from heaven and how completely incapable they were of saving themselves or doing anything to remedy their wretched condition are going to experience two positive consequences. First, they're not going to look down on anyone because they see themselves on that same level. <laughs> they're as sinful, they're as bad, they're as needy of God's grace as anyone else. And then second, they're going to have this great appreciation for what God has done for them because they didn't think that they were on their way to heaven. They thought they're on their way to hell. They didn't think that they were getting closer to heaven. They thought until God saved them, they were building up his wrath against them on their way to hell. And so they're going to have incredible thankfulness to the Lord for what he's done for them. Think of what Jesus said to the immoral woman who washed his feet with her tears and then dried them with her hair. Luke 7, 47, Jesus said, she loved much because she was forgiven much, and people forgiven little love little. Now, Jesus didn't literally mean that there are some people who are forgiven for a lot and some people who are forgiven for a little. If you're saved, you're forgiven for what? A lot. All of us who are saved have been forgiven for an incredible amount. There's an incredible amount of God's wrath that Jesus had to endure for any of us to be saved. It's not like Christ sat on the cross and thought, oh, I'm taking this huge amount of grace or wrath for this person, but for Scott, it's just a tiny bit of grace, right? Huge amounts of wrath. Did I say that wrongly? Sorry. Christ didn't sit on the cross swallowing a small amount of wrath for you, but a large amount of wrath for someone else. Huge amounts of wrath from his father that he had to consume for any of us to be saved. So when Jesus says people who are forgiven much versus forgiven little, he's talking about our awareness of our sinfulness. The people who recognize that they have been forgiven for much are going to what in return? Love much. Be thankful much. I know that's not really good grammar, but you get what I'm saying, right? People who realize they're forgiven for much will love the Lord much in return. People who believe they've been forgiven for little will have little appreciation or love for him in return. And if you think of the older brother, did it seem like he was aware of his sinfulness? No, he wasn't. And that's why he was so upset. Now, if all this makes sense, follow me for a moment. Our joy at God's grace to others is usually a good indication of our understanding of God's grace to us. Let me say that one more time. Our joy at God's grace to others, whether we're able or willing to celebrate God's grace to others, is usually a reflection or good indication of our understanding or appreciation of God's grace to us. If we believe God has been gracious to us, we're going to rejoice over God's grace to others because we know that he has been equally gracious to us. But if we believe that God has not been very gracious to us because we're so good, we haven't needed much of his grace, we're going to be frustrated at his grace to others because they don't deserve it and he's being unfair with them. We're going to be like that unforgiving servant. Do you remember that parable? This guy is forgiven for this incredible amount. And then he goes out and he grabs his, his servant by the neck who, owns, who owes him a minuscule amount in return. And then listen to what the master said to him. The master summons him and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy, or I would say grace, on your fellow servant as I had on you? So what did the master basically say? 
He said, I have been this gracious to you, so in return, shouldn't you demonstrate some grace to others? And so that really shows us the solution or helps provide the remedy if we're ever bothered by God's grace to others. Or let me say this, if we ever start to feel like that older brother, or we start to feel like those vineyard workers and we're bothered by God's grace to others, what do we need to reflect on? That's a reflection of our poor understanding of God's grace to us, right? And what we really need to do is think about how gracious he has been to us. If you have any questions about anything I shared this morning, I'll be up front after service. You know, I've been preaching, I gotta tell you, I've been bothered for the, the Thomas family while I've been preaching. I've been trying to preach through this, but I am bothered for Rebecca. I am bothered for the children that'll be here in this sanctuary this afternoon. So we're gonna close and I'm gonna pray for them too as well, okay? Not, and, and not just them, there's a gentleman, I don't know him, that's going to have to officiate this ceremony today. I've officiated the ceremony uh, of an unbeliever once or twice, and that was difficult, and the, the, the load on this man's shoulders, whoever he is, to have to officiate. So there's just a lot that's going to be happening in this sanctuary this afternoon in the fellowship hall, and I just let's just pray about that, that God can be glorified through it, and that he would be gracious to Rebecca, to the children today and over the years to come. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. I think thinking about Joshua, uh, thinking about Rebecca and the children should cause us to be thankful for what we have, should cause us to be content and joyful and convicted, uh, desiring to repent if we've complained about things in our lives, Lord. And so I pray for this afternoon situations like this, we, as we read in Romans 9, you're to be glorified through what happens in this life, Lord. And I prayed even through this afternoon, you can be glorified by this ceremony, which I'm sure is going to contain many tears. I pray that it would wonderfully honor Joshua, who I didn't know personally, but uh, my understanding is he's a wonderful, godly husband and father, a servant of yours, servant of the church for many years, Lord. And I pray that, that he would be honored this afternoon as well, uh, we pray you'd be honored even more by what takes place. Be with the man who's officiating. I think this would be a very difficult um, place to be with everyone looking at him for leadership through this, Lord. And so give him the words to say, give him wisdom and grace. And I pray for Rebecca and their children over these coming um, months and years. I pray she'd have wisdom as she tries to answer questions that must be incredibly difficult from her children, Lord, that I, I personally wouldn't know how to answer. And so I pray for strength for her. Pray for faith for the children, that through this they could be drawn to you, uh, and that you would even use this situation in their lives, that they would know you better and that they would cling to you. I pray, Lord, for all the grace needed for Rebecca and the children over these years to come. We pray this afternoon would be, would be a blessing to you and to the people who attend. Let us just be sensitive to the people around us who might be suffering um, greatly, Lord. Uh, if there's ways to help with tables or chairs, picking up, as Pastor Nathan said, Let's just set up, set up a situation where others can come in and hopefully receive some comfort, Lord. And we thank you for your grace to us again, Lord. Help us to be uh, good stewards of it as we're thankful for the grace that you pour out on others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.